Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Gary Weber. Welcome, Gary. Good to be here. Yeah. I first met you at the Science and Non-Duality Conference last year, and then you kind of disappeared, and I think you told me later you had a flu or something. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to get together finally. Um, and uh, you had an unusual kind of awakening a number of years ago. You were in the middle of a yoga posture, and, and all of a sudden everything changed and never never went back to the way it was. So that was a kind of an interesting watershed moment. But just so people can get to know you a little bit, let's backtrack and, and just give us a sketchy overview of what led you up to that moment. Why were you doing a yoga posture? What had interested you in spirituality? What, had, what sorts of things did you do up until that point? I was raised a very conservative Methodist uh, Western Pennsylvania person deeply schooled in Christianity, and that kind of, at some level I knew or felt that there was a thing called awakening and that I could get it. I don't know how I knew that because nobody around me talked about it, knew anything about it. It wasn't part of the liturgy and the Christian teachings. And then that went away and I went off, did my thing through graduate, through undergraduate, and went off to the nuclear submarine navy and almost uh, died in nuclear submarine. Wow. And some kind of accident or something? Yeah, we actually ran into the mountain. Um, underwater. Underwater, yeah. Coming back very fast and very deep and ran to a mountain. And almost almost killed ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so then that, that, that kind of was a wake-up call. I'd been living kind of uh, hard and fast. And that was kind of, a, okay, now this is for real. And came back to graduate school, and I was uh, walking down the hill into graduate school, looking at my Ph.D., I had one of these epiphanous moments where I had a step back, a look back at my consciousness and saw this tremendous rush, ongoing rush of self-referential narrative that uh, was doing nothing except causing me unhappiness and suffering, to coin a phrase. And for whatever reason, I, I looked at that and said, well, these thoughts, this must not be the way we're supposed to live. There must be some way to be able to curtail, weaken, that we get rid of these thoughts that are causing me all of my problems. There's no reason I should have been unhappy. I mean, I was healthy, late 20s, wife, two kids, uh, graduate school, money was set aside to get through. So shouldn't have been any reason to be unhappy. But there I was, and I said, well, it must be these thoughts. And can I get rid of these thoughts? So I began, this is the 70s, uh, running around reading stuff. And I picked up a, uh, a whole bunch of things. One was a book of poems. So I was reading it one day at lunch, sitting out in the old main lawn. First line. I read the first line, and my whole world opened up. I had not been using any psychedelics, have still a virgin on psychedelics. But this line was, all beings are from the very beginning Buddhas. And I didn't even know what that truly meant in any context, other than the fact that the line just blew my mind open. Half an hour, 40, 45 minutes later, of course, it closed down. But that, and I turned the book over, and it had Zen on the cover. And so I couldn't even spell Zen at that time. <laughs> and then went off, began doing Zen, uh, reading about it, practicing it myself first, and then finding some Zen teachers to work with. Uh, Rinzai tradition was what naturally drew me. Uh, Tony Packer and Edo Roshi Shimano with uh, Dabasato Zendo were my main folks. And uh, worked with them, but also continued my professional life. Went through finished graduate school, went on to work in a national lab and then off in industry for a long time, and kept running these two parallel paths. I 
felt I had to go out and do some yoga so I could sit longer because kind of Rinzai's and I was doing was doing a lot of sitting. So I did a lot of yoga with a lot of different people to learn how to you know, get more comfortable in my body and be able to sit longer. And so I just did that and I ran across Ramana Maharshi's teachings. Here was somebody who uh, was very simple, very direct, and he said, look, you can stop these thoughts, which was very attractive to me. That's what I was looking for. The only person I could find who was unequivocally focused on that, his first book was, that's what it was all about, was stopping thoughts. So I just did what he told me to do, uh, which was inquire, and to whom does this thought arise, and very simple, basic inquiry practices. They were also in Rinzai Zen, it was a 14th century, a Japanese Zen monk called Basui, who had done a similar process, it was documented in one of the big Zen books at the time. So I had some reinforcement to go ahead and pursue this thing. So I just went off and did self-inquiry. Who am I? Where am I? When am I? Who hears? What is this? Uh, am I this body? Etc. And eventually it happened. People listening might wonder, well, what's the big deal about stopping thoughts? What's wrong with thoughts? Aren't thoughts natural? Why should we want to stop them? What would you say to that? Well, it wasn't my perception. Uh, and as I talk to people now, when I talk about blah, blah, the self-replical narrative, that's the part... Uh, we can we can stop. At the time I was doing this, I had really nobody to coach me because me, my two Zen masters really they understood about this path, but it was not one they had worked in themselves. So there was no good coaching available. So I was kind of flying blind for a long time. I just kept on going on, going on, and my it's kind of a DIY process with some checkbacks occasionally to them to see if it was you know pass fail, and this kept looking, well, the thoughts gone yet, and the thoughts gone yet, no, and they finally went away, but the concern I had as a knowledge worker, I was managing a large R&D group, and I, when my thoughts stopped, a thousand people, and quarter billion dollar budget, and four research labs, and I had a very quiet mind, there were just no thoughts going around. I didn't know, when I was doing this, uh, what was going to happen, I knew my thoughts would stop, but I thought they might all stop completely. It turns out that I would lose any ability to plan or problem solve or anything else, and it turns out not to be the case, fortunately. I didn't know it at the time, but I was able to continue doing all of my research management work, and uh, just may say something about corporate management, do all my research management work, and still have this very quiet mind. So, so it's, not, it's not like the, the, you, have no, you have no ability to think whatsoever. It's just that you lose that ongoing blah blah, which just gobbles up bandwidth. Yeah. So in other words, you stop thinking all the useless thoughts; those stop. Whereas important thoughts, thoughts that are relevant to what you're doing, those are there when they need to be. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it turns out, you know, we now know over the course of the last uh, seven or eight years that there are two different neural circuits, or fact, three different neural circuits for problem solving, tasking and this blah blah network which I call this default mode network which we didn't know having that name until 2001 so we've learned in cognitive neuroscience that we we can parse those out you can differentially shut those down and uh, we've learned how to do that as a species but I didn't realize you could shut down this one separately but since then we've got lots of validation for this this shift to having a very quiet mind happened quite abruptly for you. It's not like it just tapered off gradually, but you were kind of you were in the middle of doing a yoga posture one day, and all of a sudden something clicked, and it was a watershed moment. Yeah, I do did uh, then still do vinyasas, yoga postures linked together in some sequence with mm -hmm. uh, 
breathing with inhale and exhale matched to the movement of the posture. Mm -hmm. So it really is a very meditative approach to doing yoga postures. It wasn't like that wasn't meditation, it was. And as I, you were saying, I went up into this posture and it turned out to be a very complicated one and then came back down and it just stopped, just abruptly stopped. What I don't know, people have asked me this, did you not have any indication, and it was 25 years in the making and 20,000 hours of practice, did you not have any indication along the way that things were getting better? I said, I didn't really look at that. My lineages were very much not focused on experiences, high disregard for experiences. Let them go, they're just experiences, they're coming and going, forget about them. And I just kept looking for, had my thoughts stopped yet? And they had, so I just kept on going and going and going. Flying blind, really. But certainly uh, over 20,000 hours of practice, over however many years, your, your life must have been changing in certain ways. But it was difficult because I was, I was changing so many things. My jobs, I changed, I had many different jobs that I worked in, different mm -hmm. companies. I did a lot of traveling all over the place. So I was not in a static environment with a very, called a clean experiment to run that I could say, well, this is clearly, clearly moving. I mean, retrospectively, I can go back and construct a story about, yes, it was getting better and better, but there was so much else changing in my life with two kids and moving and different jobs and travel that it just couldn't parse it out at the time. So it wasn't clear to you then, you wouldn't have been able to sort of say, well, I feel like my life is significantly different than it would have been had I not been doing all this practice. I mean, before the shift, you know, you didn't feel like you were kind of a different person as a result of all that practice. You were just doing it almost on blind faith that, you know, this is, I just need to do this because it's hopefully going to lead to this goal of stopping thoughts. Yeah, and I had this, this burning feeling that I had to do this. There right. was not there was nothing more important in my life than this. So even though I had family responsibilities and big jobs, uh, I just carved out two hours a day early in the morning. I was not an early morning person to do this. No matter what, that had to get done. And I just did that over and over and over again. And the yoga was helpful. I mean, my body was getting stronger and more flexible, but I just did it. You're a kindred soul. I've, I've been that. I've been that way myself for 45 years. You know, it's just like I, when, once I realized how important it was. Except in my case, I, I really noticed big improvements and changes in my life from day one. But I wasn't as productive a guy. I mean, here you were a PhD candidate. I was a high school dropout, and my my life was a mess in many ways. So I, I noticed a huge improvement when I started to meditate. Well, I mean, people I work with now, work with a, a doctor at Harvard, and she said within months basically she was seeing things get better things changed almost immediately just yeah. to self-inquire a little bit of guidance in the Skype session and mm -hmm. two brief meetings so people can see stuff happen really quickly now maybe I was just a slow learner but <laughs> <laughs> but 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 it did take a long time for me but flying blind makes a big difference it's so much easier now when you talk to people and you can, you've been through you've made almost all the mistakes you think you can possibly make you can help people to say, well, this is, you know, don't go there, go here, and this is another possibility you might consider. Yeah. Of course, I would argue that, you know, you were undergoing a lot of change, physiological as well as psychological or whatever, but it just wasn't apparent to you. Kind of like a train going through a tunnel. Pro you know, progress is being made, but you don't really see it until you come out the other side of the tunnel. Right. And, and I, I didn't have any idea how, how close I was or how thin the veil was between. I was doing a process of... of you know, like focused surrender. I could see that every place I had these these thoughts that were problematic, I had an attachment. This is like Buddhism 101. 
And every place I had an attachment, there was a me holding on to that. And so I would go into every single attachment and see if I could let go of each thing there was. Mm -hmm. I just went around systematically feeling for any place I had an attachment and then letting go of that attachment. And you can, you know, go into them and let go and surrender and they fall away. And I had held back on one attachment or two attachments, my two daughters. Mm-hmm. So I knew I was, some level, I, I had to let go of them. They were the last thing I was holding on to. And I actually delayed surrendering that part until they were safe. They were someplace where they were secure, they were off in school, and they were going to be okay. Because I didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, if I surrendered my attachment to them, I might be completely non-functional and lay in the curb, alongside the curb of drooling. Uh, I just didn't have any idea. I had, I had nothing to go on. So I wanted to make sure they were okay, that they were safe, and then once they were, then I let go. So that's interesting. What did it feel like to let go? And, I mean, it's natural to love your daughters, and even now if, if they got killed in a car crash or something, I, I imagine there would be some kind of reaction. It would be different than if somebody out in California whom you don't even know got killed in a car crash, right? There's There's some sort of bond there not not very much really uh, really and, and, and I've told the story people have really asked me a lot of questions about that I think it must mm-hmm. be inhumane but what I find in fact without thoughts you live currently totally in the present moment mm-hmm. I mean, there's no place else for you to be because there's nothing else pulling you away and this space becomes so sweet that there's nothing to pull you out and once the eye falls you know, to very almost nothingness or nothingness there's nothing to hold the other end of a relationship. So if you're attached to your relationships, this isn't going to work for you. Because you have to, you end up with the possibility, not the possibility, but the certainty that you go far enough. You don't necessarily have to go as far as I went. But you can go a lot of the way there. But as you let go of these attachments, the whole thing does change. There's nobody to hold the other end of compassion. And one of the worry amongst my Buddhist friends about, well, aren't you compassionate? And I said, I don't feel that I'm being compassionate. Often I see people who, Christians or Buddhists, are compa- being compassionate, trying to fit their behavior into some kind of a template, a mold, that looks like somebody told them compassion should look like. But if they really watch carefully, they'll feel that they're getting a lot of dopamine, a lot of good feelings out of being what they call compassionate. I'm just present for whatever arises in the moment. And people say, oh, you're really compassionate. I say, I have no sensation, I have no feeling of being compassionate. But some of the actions that I do, other people think they are. Yeah, what you're describing here is the difference between trying to act a certain way because that's considered to be humane or spiritual or, you know, the way to act, as opposed to just spontaneously acting a certain way by virtue of a certain perspective or certain level of consciousness or a certain degree of realization or liberation or what have you, right? I mean, you're not trying to act a particular way, you're just doing what, oh, you, no. do. you're just doing what you do and it flows naturally and spontaneously from the, whatever state you're in. There's such a uh, presence, there's all kinds of words, I use stillness because it is so quiet, but there's just nothing going on in there. So there's no agenda. Somebody comes in, everybody's equally important. They come in, uh, everything looks like the same thing at one level, but you can recognize people are different from plants and chairs. But everything just comes into your space, and whatever is there is met completely openly, fully, without agenda, without you know, history. It's just, you're just there. 
But it's still natural to have preferences, is it not? I mean, if someone put put two plates in front of you and one was just a pile of lard and the other was a delicious, well-prepared meal, you'd probably go for the meal. And, and oh, sure. Not, yeah, sure. And, but by the same token, a couple of women over in China may not mean the same to you as your, your daughters. It's a lot closer than you might believe. It, I it, mean, the world is my family and all that, you know, that, yeah, no, no, that, no, that, no, that Sanskrit saying, but, as, but we still have an individual life, despite however cosmic we may be, and aren't there still preferences in that individual life, however kind of faint they may be comparison, by comparison with the, the heaviness and the, the dominance with which most people are attached to things. As far as preferences, I like green tea better than black tea. Yeah, there you go. And that hasn't changed. Food preferences like that, and I'd rather be warm than cold. You'd rather be a hammer than a nail. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that part. But, to quote yeah. Paul Simon. Yeah, Paul, yeah, Paul Simon. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, as far as you know, b those kind of biological preferences, the body naturally has those. But as far as intellectual preferences, not really. Yeah, there's a there's a Sanskrit saying you may have heard of, you know, lesha vidya, which is faint remains of ignorance, and it's said that. You know, that's kind of essential for actually living enlightenment or living Brahman. There has to be some kind of semblance of, of discrimination and discernment and preferences so you can distinguish, you know, your mouth from your ear or, oh, or, or the door from the wall. You know, even though ultimately it's all one and there are no distinctions in ultimate reality, we, we live in a world of distinctions and we have to still be able to kind of make choices among them in order to function. Yeah, I don't step in front of buses or walk off a cliffs or pick up, right. poisonous, pick up poisonous snakes and shake them around. <laughs> Some people do. <laughs> Some people do. I, I'm not one of those people. But yes, but see, Mike, all the self-protective, the really protective fears, limbic protective fears, you don't lose, thank goodness. Right. You do recognize you don't put your hand in the fire three times. And once is enough, it's hot. I take my hand away. Yeah. So that those are all retained, and I make no effort to try to you know develop an ability to stifle those. Mm. I think that's just being an alive person, and yet you know you can you feel function in the world. I mean, it's a bit surprising that, given this situation I'm describing, that you do you just go out and you can function in the world. I can pass for being coherent. Mm -hmm. You just you just you go through your day, and what has to emerge comes out of no place. And people have told me, well, you you can't possibly talk without thinking. I said, really, really, because do you actually pre-think? Pre, you know, self-referentially think up everything you say, or does it just come out of no place? And if you watch your thoughts, you know, watch where your next thought comes from. Can you predict your next thought? Because if you can't predict your next thought, then why do you think you're going to suddenly become non-functional because you get very still in thought? You don't. You really do not. It, you, in fact, you increase functionality because all the bandwidth was being gobbled up by this parasitic blah, went on all the time about nothing. It used to be for you know tigers and bears and lions, but you don't have tigers and bears and lions. So those things, those thoughts are all made up. Yeah, yeah, I've been thinking about this quite a bit in reading your book, and you alluded a few minutes ago to different, I, f I think you called them tracks or aspects of brain functioning. One of which is the blah blah track, whatever it's called, right. and the and the other is you know perhaps responsible for the more pertinent thoughts that we, we need to think in order to to do whatever we do. And I was reminded of. Uh, but I was also reminded of something I learned a long time ago about different levels of speech. And as I recall, the, the Sanskrit were like Bhikari, Pashanti, 
Majima and Para, I don't know if I have them in the right order, but it had to do with the gross level of speech that, you know, that I'm doing right now where you can hear me, then the, the sort of subtler but still gross level of thought, where it's you know, like voice in your head kind of thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but then there's the subtler thought, which is just a sort of a faint, subtle impulse. And then there's Para, the transcendent. And it sounds like what, in, in that model at least, it sounds like what you're describing is that the sort of the gross level of thought, the chatter level of thought, more or less completely shut down. Uh, I would argue that when you go to, let's say, pick something up, there is still, uh, it might not be the gross voice in the head, I want to pick up the glasses case, but there's a subtle impulse uh, that could be defined as thought. Uh, there's just a sort of a mental impulse that precedes the physical action. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that or no? Neuroscience would tell you that when you go to pick up that glass, uh, before you even are aware that you're making the action, your motor cortex has mixed the chemicals, and you're in the process of moving that arm to pick up that glass. Because you had to mentally articulate. You had to, you had to actually describe precisely, neurochemically and anatomically, how you rotate all those muscles and nerves and nerve endings and mix the chemicals and turn the bones and how you synchronize that, you couldn't do it. No. So the motor cortex does that and we can be aware of it or not, but we go through our day 99.9% of the time doing actions we're completely unaware of. We just, we'll walk across the room, we pick up a glass, we walk across to get put water in it without thinking about that. We don't process anything. It's just the, the, the motor cortex and the brain just does that. You could also say, well, we don't think about digestion, and if we had to, we'd die. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if we had to kind of micromanage that. It's, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of things that the body just takes care of. But let me pursue this a little bit further. Um, it's been my understanding over the years, in, through my own spiritual practice and study and whatnot, that there are levels to the mind, Just and I kind of alluded to them just now, mm-hmm. ju- just as there are maybe levels to an ocean, you know, and on the surface level of the ocean you see the waves, and, and maybe you see bubbles popping if, if some air has been released from the bottom, and you could dive down and, and trace a bubble, let's say, way down to the source of the, to the bottom of the ocean where it emerged, and maybe the bubble would get smaller as it went down due to the pressure or something. And, you know, by a similar token, thoughts as they emerge on the surface of the mind, they're relatively gross. They're, they're louder. Like if I, if I were to shout what I'm saying right now, people would hear it in the other room. Speaking in this tone of voice, they don't. But you do. I could think what I'm saying right now, and you wouldn't hear it, but I still would. Going in the same direction, there are subtler, there are subtler levels in the development of a thought which ordinarily people don't perceive because they're too subtle and the, the, the mechanics of perception are coarsened or made gross over time such that we lose the ability to cognize thought at, it, at the point of its emergence or at, throughout the, the subtler ranges of its development. This whole thing about acting and not being aware of the thought which preceded the action or which motivated the action, it strikes me that perhaps it's because people's awareness is ordinarily confined to a relatively restricted area of comparatively gross phenomena. If the full range of awareness were there, then one would be open, consciously aware of the the subtlest impulses of thoughts as they arose. And this would give one great freedom. We'd be much less of a slave to things which arise in the mind without our being aware of their development. It would actually be possible to to choose, am I going to pursue this or not? But not in any kind of deliberative fashion, but more with just a faint, subtle intention go this way, go that way. There would be an intuitive faculty that would arise. So I've meandered a little bit, but go ahead and respond to what I've said, and we'll take it from there. Well, there are a couple of things in there, three or four different things in there, which what I heard. 
Yeah. Uh, the one about being able to go down and, and watch thoughts, if you've meditated a lot and you have, you can get more and more perceptive, it's called that. As you get quieter and quieter, you can go down to where you can actually, these are because it's very quiet, uh, see like a surface of a lake, a very still lake. And if you're present watching for that, you can see the thoughts begin to form, just like a little bump on the lake, a little slight bump on the lake. And if you are present for that, you tend to it, it will just go back down again. Right. So, so you, you can be aware at that very first beginning of initiation of a potential thought. You can, you can, you can nip it in the bud. You so can nip so. it in the bud. You can, hold, you can, you can have that be completely still. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is different than, than the other things about the intention. I, mean, I, I don't look at emotions as being thoughts. Some people do. They don't strike me as in the same way there is the movement of sensation through the body. I don't make any attempt to suppress that. What do you want to call that? Thought, not thought. I don't call it a thought. But those mm-hmm. sensations arise and pass away. Uh, emotions can rise and pass away. And now we get into, well, for me, the problematic thing comes. An emotion comes up, tagged to a sensation. And... Um, if you are fully present, that doesn't go into thinking. There's no arising of an attachment. However, if the first, what I call thought, comes up and hooks onto that, maybe a storyline about something, just begins. And if that's a sicky thought, some thought that has you know, Velcro to it, it can pull all kinds of memories and all kinds of, so you can spiral up in these horrendous things that we've seen where this thought just runs out of control and you turn a simple desire into wild craving, and we've all seen that seen that happen. And so mm-hmm. you just don't have that second part. And that's where the problematic part is. It, it, if it isn't self-referential, it doesn't, in my experience, get the power to be able to spin up these big spirals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't try to shut down the front end. I don't try to shut down sensations. I don't try to shut down. I mean, if there are some limbic emotions. I don't try to shut those down. Why would you? Because you're functioning in a very spontaneous, natural manner from yeah. a from a settled state of awareness. You know, right. you don't need to manipulate. I don't have that. Something else that happened, and you you touched on it too, is that I was very much convinced that I had achieved what I've achieved in the corporate world and the academic world by my genius and by my hard work and intelligence and cleverness mm-hmm. and blah blah blah. And when this thought stopped and the I stopped and fell away, there was nobody to hold the uh, I make this choice, I make this decision. I have been in control all the time. And so I was left in a situation where, I, even though I had been very much convinced I was, had made all this take place, I was now saying there was no I there to have made it take place. Mm-hmm. So I just fell into, logically, that the fact that I had no free will because there was no one to have it, and I had no control because there was no one to hold control. And so I just found myself in this space of living now, 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 and surrendered into what happened because I had no other alternative. And I found that to be a very sweet space, actually. Yeah. It's funny, each of us says something, and then the other can see three or four things in that that they want to pursue. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I get from that is, first of all, I've heard it described that emotions, that thought, as we ordinarily define it, little voice in the head type thought, is actually a subtler aspect of the sense of hearing. Emotions are a subtler aspect of the sense of touch. Some people have visual things in their minds. They see, they think in images, they say. That's a subtler aspect of the sense of sight. You may have at one time been meditating and all of a sudden tasted a lemon or something like that. 
subtler aspect of the sense of taste. So each of the senses has its gross manifestation and outward directedness, but it also has subtler correlates in subject, you know, kind of a subjective thing, not using the senses that, you know, the, the eyes, the ears, the physical senses. That, and, and so, so anyway, there's that. I don't know. It's just something interesting to throw into the conversation. Then this thing about the doership, of course, as you know, you're, you've been a study of Vedic things, and there's verses and verses in the Gita and other scriptures about how one really isn't the doer. You know, one takes oneself to be the doer, but upon adequate, you know, awakening or realization, one discovers that, oh, you know, I don't do anything. I, it's the gunas of nature or whatever that are, that are doing it all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, one of my favorite verses is, which is, I do... The wise know that I do nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And it goes through endless passions, shrinvan, sprishan, jigvan, ashnan, gachan, svapan, svasan, palapan, vizudan, grunan, amishan, nimishanapi, which just says seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, sleeping, moving, grasping, going, letting going, go, grasping, letting go, even open and closing the eyes, speaking. I do none of these. It's just right. the senses moving amongst the sense, sense objects. Mm-hmm. Indrani and direct tissue. Yeah. So it all depends on where you take your stand. Personally, I see it as, as it's sort of like a, I don't know, a, a lens. You know how a lens can focus in mm-hmm. small or it can zoom out. And uh, and most people are sort of in the, the focused state and stuck there such that there's this feeling like this is what I am. I'm doing this. When this body dies, I'm gone. You know, that kind of thing. But then in the zoomed out state, one realizes I am that consciousness which is pervades and, and constitutes the entire universe and everything is contained in me. Now, there's a whole range in between those two perspectives. My take on enlightenment is it's not either or. It's a, it's a kind of a it's both and situation where... You know, there is still a sense of individuality, and there needs to be in order to function, but it's a, it's a question of where is one's primary identification? Is it going to be with, with the tiny pinpoint value, or is it going to be with the, the vast, unbounded, fundamental value? Yeah, I, I can't detect much of anything of the one end of that. I mean, mm. to me, I, there's, just, there's nothing there. It's just vast, still emptiness. Uh, you still have a, you know, a, a GPS locator. I mean, Ramana didn't bump into tr- into trees and stuff or fall down the well at the ashram. So uh, you you are functional. You can talk, walk around. You you put your food in your mouth, not in your ear. If you stub your toe, it's your toe. Yeah, that, it, well, the, the pain is somehow localized. It's not it's not over in the other county. It's right. it's there in in this body. There is, and Adyashanti called it the, the scent of an eye. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, yeah. is, there is some very faint. That's, that's the Lesha Vidya idea. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is some very faint residue that's necessary because you you are embodied to have something that keeps this thing protected so it can function. The body has to have some kind of a locator. I guess the reason, the reason I'm dwelling on this point a little bit is that it's actually I have a quote from Adyashanti in front of me. There's a oh. a kind of a syndrome that he dwells on quite a bit in his teaching. He said, many spiritual, and I'm not accusing you of this, I don't think this is the case with you, but he said, many spiritual seekers get stuck in emptiness, in the absolute, in transcendence. They cling to bliss or peace or indifference. 
When the self-centered motivation for living disappears, many seekers become indifferent. They see the perfection of all existence and find no reason for doing anything, including caring for themselves or others. I call this taking a, a false refuge. It's a very subtle egoic trap. It's a fixation in the absolute and an unconscious form of attachment that masquerades as liberation. It can be very difficult to wake someone up from this deceptive fixation because they literally have no motivation to let go of it. Stuck in a form of divine indifference, such people believe they have reached the top of the mountain when actually they are hiding out halfway up its slope. Enlightenment does not mean one should disappear into the realm of transcendence. To be fixated in the absolute is simply the polar opposite of being fixated in the relative. With the dawning of true enlightenment, there is a tremendous birthing of impersonal love and wisdom that never fixates in any realm of experience. To awaken to the absolute, I'm almost done with the quote, to awaken to the absolute view is profound and transformative, but to awaken from all fixed points of view is the birth of true non-duality. If emptiness cannot dance, it is not true emptiness. If moonlight does not flood the empty night sky and reflect in every drop of water on every blade of grass, then you are only looking at your own empty dream. I say, wake up, then your heart will be flooded with a love that you cannot contain. Nice, huh? Yeah, the, the, the idea of dancing emptiness, which is the title of one of his books, mm -hmm. emptiness dancing, which it is. I think it's that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very much that, that way, with my experience. I mean, mm -hmm. it, is, it keeps dancing. I mean, he's absolutely correct. I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of his. Yeah, me too. Uh, I mean, when I, after the page turned for me, uh, I couldn't find anybody that was saying anything that made any sense to me uh, that represented anything like what I was going through. And I went and heard him talk, and I said, you know, he and I are crazy exactly the same way. I mean, we were both, maybe we're both crazy, but he has he doesn't seem like I am. But yeah. the, empty, the emptiness dancing thing is is very much how it is. I mean, there's this emptiness, but the dance still continues. And I do see people exactly as he described. I've challenged them. I say, well, what if I just do nothing? I say, well, go ahead and do nothing. Go upstairs and lie in bed. See how long you can just lie in bed and do nothing. And watch what happens. And invariably, I say, well, I tried it. Well, I say, what happened? Well. I laid there for a little while, and then I saw my leg getting up and moving out of the thing, getting out of the bed, moving out. Of you can just see whatever it is, the dance beginning. The dance just keeps moving you along. You don't need to be in there to have the dance take place. In fact, they're almost like two parallel paths. There's this blah, blah going on, this identity, uh, and, and it thinks it's doing the thing. And in fact, there's a beautiful dance happening that it isn't even present for. It doesn't even know it's aware of it. It is this emptiness dancing. It doesn't need this narrator. We use this metaphor of a, of a rider and an elephant. I mean, you've got this brilliant elephant going around doing a dance, an elephant dance. And on top of that, you've got this press secretary who's running around talking about things and imagining it should be, you know, oh, I'm going to, I'm this or I'm that or I'm awakened or I'm not awakened. Or it's just a press secretary. It formulates a bunch of the, you know, the, here's how I solve this problem, blah, blah, blah. Here's a question to ask. Tell somebody else about the answer. But it's just a press secretary. And the press secretary somehow, and it's only about 75,000 years old evolutionarily, mm -hmm. this press secretary, uh, the whole concept. We broke off from chimpanzees six million years ago, and 75,000 years ago, we probably, about that time, we developed this, this egoic structure and this symbolic consciousness. So it's a very recent development, and it's taken over. I mean, it was probably very useful for 30, 40,000 years as we've got more socialized and more complex work allocations and such. But now, it's turned into a problem I mean, it, it's not helpful to most people. It's really causing a lot of their problems. And my, one of my speeches right now is, we need no operating system. And we've got, you know, Homo sapiens one that's been running for 75,000 years, and Homo sapiens two 
which it's time for with this you know, reduced self-referential narrative which causes so much of our problems. We can just somehow get that reduced in intensity, stickiness, uh, duration. Um, we can live much happier lives. You don't have to go where I am. I mean, I mean, to me, and, and maybe the only value I have is saying, look, you, you can go all the way, and it's not a bad place. But people, people start and they say, well, what if I, what if I end up with no thoughts? I said, well, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. What about, I want to give up my this or that. I want to keep my car or my, what a stock options or something. So fine, keep those things. But recognize every place that you've got an attachment, this is Buddhist, I don't, you've got an attachment, you're going to have suffering around that particular attachment. And so the more you can get rid of those attachments, the less you will suffer. If you want to pick some things to suffer over and obsess over and enjoy and have pleasure in, fine. But you're going to suffer there. Yeah, well, obviously, and there's a difference between having things and, and being attached to things. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you probably have a car. You still have daughters. Maybe you get together with them for Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, you have a couch behind you there, um, you know, <laughs> uh, stuff like that. So this whole notion that you have to give everything up or that you're not going to be able to function. I mean, after you're awakened, you continued for years, right? I mean, performing very complex, yeah. demanding, responsible tasks. And that, I mean, that's one of the old Indian stories, is these two fakirs are on the beach, and they've given up sannyasi, they've given up everything. Mm-hmm. All they have is their loincloths. Mm-hmm. A big argument ensues about whose loincloth is more special. <laughs> My loincloth is less special than yours, so I'm further along, sir, than what you are. Mm-hmm. It's not about that. It isn't about letting go of having the thing. That's too easy. It's right. not that simple. Letting go, the, you know, letting go of the attachment is so much more difficult and letting go of the thing itself. Mm-hmm. You can let go of it and still be deeply attached to it. Yep. Oh, then there's that great Zen story about how two, an older Zen monk and a younger Zen monk are walking along and they come to a, a river or a stream and there's this young pretty girl standing there and she can't get across, you know, and so the older monk picks her up and they walk across. He, he puts her down, they keep on walking. And a couple hours ensue and, and finally the younger monk can't stand it anymore. He said, you know, monks, we're not supposed to touch women. You know, why did you pick up that girl and carry her? And the older monk says, oh, are you still carrying her? I put her down a couple hours ago. Exactly. And that's how it, how it gets to be. You just don't pick up anything and carry it around. If you pick it up, pick her up and carry her, you put her down again. Yeah. You don't think about it for hours later. That, that's right. the difference. Without that self-preferential spin-up, you just don't think go back to her again. I know you've correlated a lot of this understanding with the physiology and studying that, right? Have you heard that analogy that's it's very handy about line on stone, line on sand, line on air, line on water in, in terms of impressions that it really relates to the physiology, that a physiology which is very sort of rigid in its functioning and easily impressionable and holds on to impressions is perhaps correlated with uh, the unenlightened state or the ignorant state, whereas enlightened physiology functions quite differently and experiences things very deeply and clearly and richly but there's no lasting impression it just sort of you know keep moving on yeah and I think the biggest surprise for some people is that your pleasures are actually more acute I yeah mean, they're, actually, they're actually much more powerful because you aren't having a pleasure thinking about is this as good as the last time I had this pleasure or should I get a better pleasure than this next time or can I be sure I can get this pleasure back again you're just totally present for the pleasure and the senses are unencumbered. They're they're exactly. not they're it's, not all sort of conditioned and and yeah, absolutely. It's it's a, a totally different, much more intense experience. And the amazing thing is, it stops and it's over. Yeah, it's just gone. 
Well, it's like using that analogy. You can pass your arm through air a lot easier than you can pass it through water, a lot easier than you can pass it through sand, a lot easier than you can pass it through stone. Right. You know, I mean, if the nervous system is like air, using this metaphor, then the experiences can be very profound and deep and rich and, and, and all that. But, again, there's no attachment. Exactly. No lasting impression. And there's a big longing to get it back again and begin scheming about how I have it happen again. It was so fantastic. And spend our lives. Lennon? I think Lennon said. Oh, right. It you was. spend your life <laughs> being yeah. someplace else. You're never here right now. He said life is what happens when we're busy yeah, making I've, other plans. Plans, yeah. I think I can pull it up, yeah. <laughs> and that, yeah. That's, what, that's what it is. I mean, you'll be, you're sitting in you know, the place... That, that was uh, John Lennon, by the way, not uh, Vladimir. Oh, no, yeah, John. Yeah, John. <laughs> oh, John. Oh, John. Yes, O-N. But you're, you're like that. You're in the place you wanted to be. You're on vacation. You're with the right partner. You're with the right whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting there thinking... Something else, some other plan, some how do I get back to this? This is great. I got to make sure she never leaves me. Whatever it is, you're just never there present. And it's amazing when you relate to people and you are present for them. Mm. Because almost nobody is really with somebody fully. You know, they're off someplace else, someplace in their head. And that's why the self referential thought not being there leaves you in now, 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 because there's nothing to pull you out of that space. You've used the word self-referential a number, number of times. Could you elaborate a little bit on what, how, what you mean by that phrase? This is Norma Harshi, this isn't me speaking, but Norma Harshi put this out, that's really the eye. And what, I, what I've done is, you know, you can do a little buckets, experiments with thought buckets, and you can say, okay, we'll do a three-minute experiment, or a three-minute experiment, and we have one bucket which has I, me, my thoughts in it. The other bucket has thoughts that don't have an I, me, my in them, implicitly or explicitly. And we'll just do it three minutes, and we'll say, okay, and works up like, yeah. okay, which bucket is full? She these grins on her faces. It's all in the eye of your mind. Right. It's all about me. It's, it's already all about So me. that's what you mean by self-referential? That's, that's like, you know, Referring to the individual self. Okay. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you actually have this, this obsession with worrying about yourself, what's going to happen to me. That's mm-hmm. what, you know, what's in it for me? That's what the whole bit is about. And so once you've got that, then you've got an angle approach to these thoughts. You can say, okay, those self-referential ones, small s self-referential ones, those are the ones that are causing the problems. I see. I, I can go after those. Yeah. Uh, well, I wonder because sometimes self-referential is used with reference to the, large, the biggest self, <laughs> and so it has a completely different connotation. Yeah, a little less. Yeah. In that sense, it's a, it's a positive thing because if one is self-referential with reference to the big S self, then one is not object referral in one's orientation and, and life, life flows as we've been describing. Exactly. In fact, it's also a very creative way to be, being self-referential to the, to the big S self. There's a verse in the Gita where Krishna says, uh, curbing back on myself, I create again and again. And so, and haven't you found that that when there's when the awareness is sort of settled and rested in the in the biggest self, that there's this sort of wellspring of creativity that you have at your disposal? That was to me one of the really astonishing things that I found. And I kept on working in big jobs, and I got more big jobs after that, mm-hmm. different complexity of jobs. And you know, I, I would go. I just came off the board trustees of a regional medical center here, the vice chair. You'd read the exhibits ahead of time, all the things you're supposed to talk about and all the financials. You go to the meeting, you just be there and you're very still and present and quiet. You don't do anything. You're just still on the meeting, you're just sitting there, blah, 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 going on. Suddenly something just comes up out of no place, out of a deep stillness, something just emerges. You just say it, blah, blah, blah. and it's, <laughs> it's like, oh, OMG, 
my God, that's brilliant. People look like, whoa, that's incredible. <laughs> and I don't, there's no sense of authorship. You know you didn't think it up. You didn't create it. But just by being in that complete emptiness, the elephant offline high-speed processor with multi, you know, comes up with these solutions that are so much more elegant and so much more intelligent than I, than I was, I am. And so people went, well, he's the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> and their thing happens because you're in, the, you're in the room, in the meeting, 100%. Nobody else is there 100%. Right. Nobody else is there some fraction of that. Some of them are very small fractions of that. So not only are you present, but you've got this space out of which some unbelievable creative things can arise. If you talk to the big painters and the sculptors and the big athletes and the jazz musicians, they'll say the same thing. I mean, their best efforts come out of this flow state, which Mihaly talked about, where you do have emptiness. I mean, you've, you've got your skills in place, you know how to do this task, you get out of the way, and that's where real art emerges, that's where real music emerges, that's where creativity happens, science happens there, big science happens there. It's interesting to ponder this because when we talk about ultimate reality or, or what um, what's really going on, everybody is in reality in that space of not being the doer and um, it's really cosmic intelligence if we want to use that phrase that's doing everything and we're just little instruments of that uh, but most people you know regard their individual instrumentality their their small s self as the doer so it's a mistake of the intellect it's a, it's a mistaken identity kind of thing um, but really that's what's going on it's interesting to kind of just play with this because what what you're saying is is the fulfillment of that bumper sticker, you know, let go and let God. Um, you finally become a, a sort of a fit vehicle through which that much more vast intelligence can function. Um, yeah, it's like the old Rumi quote about, uh, you know, I'm just a reed through which the wind blows. Beautiful. And, and yeah. there's, there's very much that sense of, I tell people, I look out, give some talks in Europe last week, Ago, and tell people, look, I look out and I see just the self. Mm -hmm. I see, I see a her. I use it a her. Mm -hmm. I, I like a her as a metaphor, anthropomorphized metaphor. I said, it's just, it's just her dancing. Everything that you see is just her dancing. Everything is just her dancing. There's nothing that isn't her dancing. You just, some of you think you're, you're doing this thing. You're just making it complicated and difficult for yourself. It's just a, a dance that she is articulating and she's moving. She's the actors. She's the play, she's the playwright, she's the director, she's the music, she's everything. You just let go into that space. And I, I, this, I tell people, you can't believe how beautiful and how freeing it is to let go into that space. There's another Buddha verse, Ananyas Chintai, Antomam Yejanas Pasate, Teisham Nityabiyuktanam Yogakshamam Bahami. How much says, you know this verse? It says, as you surrender into me, as you become me, you will find that I will take care of everything you need and I will preserve what you have. Mm. And, and I have found so much that to be a confirmation on the path that the more I surrendered, the more I felt something was holding me. And I didn't really have any reason to think that, but I surrendered more, I was held more. Ajakan has a good quote on this the same way. When you surrender completely, you find out you're totally held. It's hard to imagine, hard to believe. When you first hear that key to verse, you think, oh, it's just, you know, philosophical BS. But it really has turned out to be my direct experience. The more you let go, the more it's obvious you're held, and it seems like the more you are supported moving forward. 
It's beautiful. It's a good sales pitch for this. I mean, to use a you know my direct experience. Yeah. No, I mean for something else. Yeah, for people who think you know that they're going to lose something or their life is going to become sterile or weird or impersonal thing that we allude to means they're just going to kind of be a colorless blob of some sort. All those notions are dispelled by what you just described. And, it is and by so, that beautiful Gita verse. That was a great one. Yeah, and it's so beautifully rich. I mean, mm -hmm. one thing that does happen also I didn't expect was that we have found, this is these are anecdotal now, trying to compare why I stay in this space. Others are staying in this space now more and more. You say, well, don't you get pulled out by X, Y, or Z? I say, well, let's talk about that. And so I ask people I work with to say, okay, let's look at your typical dual experience, your typical life experience, sex, drugs, and... Rock and roll. And rock and roll. <laughs> rock and roll. And rock and roll, mostly rock and roll will be this, the stillness space. Right. And so I say, okay, these guys are, these men and women have been in this, this rock and roll space uh, for some, some period of time. You know, not, con not, not continuous, but for some for days, weeks, and some through an entire you know, work day or maybe even a month. And so I was like, okay, well, compare how you felt pleasure-wise in that space to how you felt with psychedelics, and many people are big psychedelic users, or sex, and to your normal state, and to the person. You know, rock and roll was, was highest, and psychedelics was second, and sex was third, and the typical dual state was fourth, down low. So, as the Buddha has said, if it weren't that way, Nobody would be meditating. Mm. If sex were 16 and everything else was no higher than seven, it wouldn't. It would you know, end of meditation. But that's not the way it is. And these people are all reporting the same thing. That, you know, it is rock and roll is better than sex and drugs. Hey, I mixed you up by throwing in rock and roll. There no, it's that, cool. No, no, there was that so 60s phrase. You know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Oh, yeah, totally. I got it. But got by it. rock and roll, in this sense, you're alluding to you know experience of pure being, right? The absolute. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 that, and that pure being state is sweet. It isn't like you fall into a void. I mean, it's, a, it's, an, it's ananda. Yeah, and exactly. And, and you know, the Heart Sutra is often translated as, you know, Sinatra is often treated as being some kind of an awful, dark, void, unknown. Ooh. And it's nothing but that. It's really such a, a remarkably sweet space. Mm -hmm. I call it full emptiness or empty fullness. You can't imagine bringing anything in that would improve it or taking anything out of it that would improve it. It's just so sweet. Mm. There's a verse, you may know the Sanskrit, I don't know it, but it's uh, contact with Brahman is infinite joy. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, so I mean this bears emphasis because, uh, for a number of reasons, I mean firstly it explains why we're drawn to it and why it's possible to go in that direction. It ex explains why you did spiritual practice for X number of years be even before your awakening because whether you knew it or not there was some uh, deeper sweetness that was that was drawing you, that was att attracting you. And um, I have a friend, Francis Bennett, you may have watched my interview with him, and he's been get he at a certain point he was getting a lot of flack on Facebook because he kept talking about bliss and how blissful this state is, and people were sort of fundamentalist non dualists were kind of who have, obviously hadn't really studied, studied non dualism were getting on his case for that because you know what is all this talk of bliss? It's just you know the bliss denotes some kind of relative pleasure or something, but it's beyond that. It's it's, it's absolutely yeah. yeah. Yeah, and one thing we're kind of pondering or trying to come up with a solution right now is, is how does the brain do this? I mean, how, how do we have 16, 17 hours a day of bliss? 
Mm-hmm. Because most experiences, pleasure experiences, are much shorter than that. Not so, 24. Not how about, well. I mean, uh, sleep, how about during sleep? Well, well, that's a lot, no discussion. Bliss then too. Bliss then too. But I was saying, just while you're conscious, and you, right. can be conscious you can be conscious and sleep too. Just while you're conscious, how does the brain manufacture enough dopamine mm-hmm. or endogenous opioids to be able to support this thing? Somehow it does. And we've got people talking about. You know, we made a, with a commentary with a woman from from Hopkins who's doing a lot of psilocybin work. Uh, on a paper that talks about, okay, you know, do we have endogenous opioids enough to keep this thing going all day long? Because mm-hmm. somehow the brain, you know, instead of the state being a, a still flat place, I mean, the brain, if it sees things moving, it'll stay attentive. Mm-hmm. And if it, it's if it isn't moving, if it's if it's there's nothing, there's no stimulus being being handled, then the brain gets. Uh, so there must be something that's happening, and there is an aliveness, a presence to this space. There's a real in addition to this big sweetness and this great stillness internally, there is a great aliveness to a vitality and energy to everything that you see. Mm-hmm. And so that appears to be enough or what keeps the brain engaged to keep supporting this thing. I think the brain, this is anthropomorphizing now, the brain likes this space. It likes this not mm-hmm. being in chaos, not being in confusion, not being unhappy. It says, this is Christian Mercury, this is really a cool space. Yeah. The brain likes it. You give enough pictures of the space, the brain will refunctionalize to support this. And it does. The brain yeah, just, in this trains is so cool. or something. Yeah. It does. it does. Depressed people manage to stay depressed for 24 hours a day, yeah, more yeah. or less. <laughs> Schizophrenics manage to stay crazy for 24 hours. The brain takes care of those things, so why right. shouldn't it be able to manage to yeah. maintain yeah. bliss? I get, yeah. If you give it enough pictures of, of Maui, it'll map out a route to Maui. You'll have no problem <laughs> staying in Maui. It's doing yeah. whatever, whatever your, your pleasure place is. The brain is, most people I work with on this thing get further along, they say it's obvious at some point that the brain is running the show. I mean, the brain has taken over. I guess and that's hopefully materialistic, but it's just a way to talk about it that people can deal with it. Uh, that, you know, this is what is supported ultimately. I mean, mm. this is what I believe we were meant to be. We we're meant to do this thing. Or it wouldn't, it wouldn't be supported the way it is. It wouldn't be the most desirable thing. It wouldn't be something this transceiver brain of ours could functionalize into. Mm. I mean, to me, I, I think we're just reconnecting with the infinite. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of stuff out now on. You've, you've heard a lot of this from, from folks you know about. You know, we, we, there is an infinite field. There is an infinite, all-pervasive field. We do. We do not know for certain if it's intelligent, but we know that every we deconstruct ourselves down to the finest. We're just energy patterns. And there's a, there's a huge field, the Higgs field, dark energy, call it what you want to call it, that penetrates everything. It's all through the books, but it's also what we're seeing in physics now. What we don't know is that self-aware and this is intelligent. Hmm. Now, but if, if, if it's intelligent, it's a lot smarter than I am. That's unlikely we'll be able to you know, be as smart to understand it, and even from a physical standpoint, we can't stand outside of it. I mean, if it penetrates us completely, we cannot get a space away from it to be able to look back on it to be able to talk about it. But it can know itself. It can know itself, and, I th- and that's what we think it is. We think it is knowing itself. So, and there is a high, the higher purpose, higher definition of the term self-referral. Okay. And uh, and the Gita, you know, there's a verse, the self no, realizes itself by itself, some such okay. thing. Regarding the intelligence point that you make, I, I love that idea. I mean, I, I just... 
pretty much all day long when I'm not busy doing something else, I'm kind of marveling at the intelligence of nature. If I'm cutting the grass, it's just like I, I just sort of, it's not like I'm thinking about it, but there's just this sort of appreciation of how much intelligence is imbued in every particle of creation, every blade of grass, every leaf, every everything. It's like there's this marvelous... It's like we just kind of ignore it because we live our lives, but if you, if you just contemplate for a moment what's going on on the molecular level, a, a biological level, subatomic levels, everything is this orchestra of incredible intelligence and and complexity and and it's it's like it and you know you can deduce from that that there's just this omnipresent ocean of intelligence exactly yeah yeah and, and look, I agree with you you know they say well you scientists the scientists become reductionist materialists and you don't see any beauty the, the big scientists I know say on the contrary I mean the, the deeper you go the further you get the more you're just in awe it's yeah, a, and the great ones. There's there's great quotes from Einstein and and Niels Bohr and people like that who you know really pre- appreciated yeah. that kind of stuff. Since we're having a spiritual discussion here, it's not impersonal intelligence. It's it's God. It's and that's ultimately what we are. I mean, the word God is not little old man in the sky with a big with a no. beard. It's that ocean of intelligence of infinite intelligence that's all pervading. Absolutely. Absolutely. Conceptualization of that is, is is the problem. We have all kinds of, of the history of mankind. We have all kinds of strange ideas of what God might be. But when you get back to you can go back to deep into the Upanishads and pull them out. I'm not pitching the Upanishads. You can pull out the Upanishads for a long time. But there was this sense of there is something that is penetrating everything. There is mm-hmm. basic intelligence that underlies all life. And we're now beginning to curve back into that again with our physics and saying, yeah, it could be. That really could be. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you've heard some of these physicists speak at the SAND conference, you know, Menatos Kafatos and John Hagelin and these guys. There's some great insights being um, proposed by these guys. Getting back to the point of bliss, one of Marshi Mahesh Yogi's favorite, or one of the pillars of his teaching was that, firstly, nothing new. This is ancient Hindu teaching that the essence of life is bliss, Ananda. And uh, but he emphasized a lot that the, the na- there's a natural tendency built into us, uh, natural tendency of the mind, we could say, to seek a field of greater happiness, mm-hmm. and that's and that's how meditation ultimately works. Is it's a lot the, the mind is allowed to sort of discover or, or explore finer levels of experience, and doing so encounters greater happiness, and that's what leads it on. That's what motivates it to keep moving in that direction. And we all have the experience that everybody runs around trying to fill up the space inside themselves. There's a sense of an emptiness that Mm -hmm. I keep trying to get pleasures and jam them into this thing and make the emptiness go away. And I get the pleasures and I look at them and I say, oh, it's still there. Mm-hmm. And I get more pleasure than the other man. It's still there. It hasn't gone away. And, I, and then we, we just never seem to think, until we do a lot of spiritual work, turn inside and look at that. Maybe it's not horrible. We keep trying to fill it up. Maybe it may be really a sweet space. You consider the possibility. And just begin looking deeper. And as Mahershogi said, just start to go into that thing and begin to explore it. And you find out, once you get past the little initial noise levels, that it is an incredibly sweet space. And it keeps... This is Ramana now. It keeps pulling you in deeper and deeper. No matter how hard you think you are trying to find it, it is trying so much harder to pull you in. <laughs> and it just pulls you forward. You just let go, surrender, let go, do your thing, and move into that space. It is really pulling you into that space. Yeah. 
And zooming out a bit here, what is this universe all about after all? Why did, the, why did these bodies evolve after billions of years? Uh, you know, what is the purpose of it all? Uh, seems to me it's for my own worldview on the thing, is just that Brahman wanted, you anthropomorphize when you talk this way, but the sort of creative impulse that gave rise to the universe, it's all well and wisely put, and it did so such that there could eventually evolve forms of life which could you know experience this as a living reality so the reason i'm saying this is in in reference to what you just said that we're fulfilling a cosmic purpose by doing this by participating in this process we're in a way fulfilling the purpose for which creation arose in the first place <laughs> which is this this evolutionary adventure that has led us to the point where we where living breathing life forms can talk about and experience that which precedes and lies at the basis of the universe. Yeah, and, and to me, I'm anthropomorphizing it. It's it's her learning about herself. She exactly, to, so much better to, put. She wants to learn about herself in every possible way. And so, why do you have all different kind of people and all these kind of good things and bad things? Said, she's trying to learn about herself, and what yeah. we are are just sensing uh, exploratory pods on the on the infinite. And she's going around testing, learning about this, learning about that, trying this out, trying that out. And as she does, she expands and knows more and more about herself. It can be Leela, it can be this divine dance for pleasure, but it can also be an exploration for her trying to understand herself in so many different ways. Beautiful. You, you put it much better than I did. And to quote St. Teresa of Avila, it appears that God himself is on the journey. Or we could say yes. God herself. Exactly. God <laughs> herself is on the journey. And that's, I hadn't heard that quite. It's a great quote. That's yeah. absolutely it. I mean, she's, she is the journey. She is dancing the whole thing. Mm. And she wants to understand better. Grow. Great. Let's shift gears a little bit. In your book, you talk a lot about Ramana Maharshi and a lot about the importance of practice. You yourself were and are a practitioner of many decades. I suppose you're still doing some sort of practice. I don't know. There are a lot of people who claim to be in the lineage of Ramana Maharshi, even though I'm not so sure he established the lineage, who de-emphasize practice, um, who say that it only reinforces the notion of a practicer, and who seem to represent him as not having advocated practice. But in in your book, you, you quote a lot of instances in which he recommended all sorts of different things to people. Absolutely. So yeah, let's, let's, yeah, tell us about some of that stuff. This is kind of the uh, one of the baseline themes of the Science Nondiwadi Congress in Europe I spoke at and was on two panels in. Mm -hmm. and there, are, there were some neo-advitans, which is kind of a good word, bad word, but you talk to, <laughs> who, who say this, and, and Tony Parsons is one of the most prominent ones. Right. And he wrote a great book. As It Is was a great book. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, I, I listened to Tony, I talked to him, a big fan of that understanding point. But it, disingenuously, he comes back and says, well, see, nothing you have to do. Just be here. Mm -hmm. Yes, but he had to do a lot of stuff. There's a whole chapter in As It Is devoted to all the practices he did. Mm -hmm. So how could you possibly, and I asked him this point blank, you know, one on three, I said, Tony, how can you say this? You've got a whole chapter in your book devoted to your practices. How could you say, you know, walking across the park is what woke you up. It wasn't that at all. We know from tons and tons, Malcolm Margaret's book, Malcolm Gladwell's book. Gladwell. Outliers. Yeah, Gladwell's book. Gladwell's book, mm -hmm. that there's a lot of good research, I can blog post on this, uh, that, you know, mastery, 
takes something like ten thousand dollars, whether you're playing golf or chess yeah. or, or rock climbing. Or and he, he cites the Beatles uh, yeah. having having put in all that time in Hamburg, and Bill Gates having you know done all That's this programming right. time as a teenager and everything. That's yeah, right. yeah. And, it, it, it take, you know, the brain takes training. Neuroplasticity. So, neuroplasticity. We know it. It's well documented. We've had some some great scientific research, even more than Gladwell's book. That really the basis for Gladwell's book, a fellow named Erickson, that did all this research work. And no matter what you talk about, surgery, pick, pick anything at all, it takes 10,000 hours to become really good at it. doesn't mean you don't play the violin at all at 100 hours. You can play something. But to get really good, you've got to practice 10,000 hours, roughly, on the violin. There are some, there are some Mozarts, even Mozarts. His dad was the, you know, like the number one teacher at the time, and so he, he came from a lineage that he, he was, a, even as a four-year-old, he'd been taught and, taught and taught and taught and taught. He practiced, 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 practiced. There aren't many cases where somebody steps out of the stream of, of having done a lot of practice and to get to where they are. Even though so what did was, Tony Parsons say when you asked him that? He said, I didn't do that much. He got up and ran, walked away. He did? He literally walked away? He literally walked away. Oh, man. <laughs> and, and, and he's in, the, in the middle of the forum. No, no, no. This is, we were out in the porch. This, oh, okay. This, this is in La Jolla at the Interdirections Gathering. Oh, I see. There's probably like 300 people at the uh, Art Institute there on the bluffs of La Jolla. And mm -hmm. you could, it was nice because you could have breaks and they'd be out there, the speakers would be out there, you could talk to them. You know, Eckhart mm -hmm. was walking around and Gong Ji and all those people, where you could see them. And Gong yeah. and Ajishanti. And uh, Tony was right there. The two people were sitting and talking about what, what they were talking to him. I said, Tony, here's a question for you. Yeah. I'm not, I don't understand. Blah, blah, blah. Then he jumped up, ran away. Interesting. So, but but I mean, there is that, and I, I the people get the wrong message. This often happens, you know, in this whole this game, that they hear, I don't have to do anything, when in fact it'd be like saying, uh, you know, I can get to the top of the, the high board, the Olympics, and I can just do a perfect, you know, double twisting backflip with a knife, and you can't. You right. had to do a lot of work to get there. The Cezanne says this, Matisse says this, the big jazz musicians say this. It's all the same thing. Practice, 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 Picasso, practice, mm -hmm. practice, practice, practice. And then they're in a transcendent space. But you have to do the brain training up front. Yeah. Let's, let's play with this a bit more. And, well, can you give us any theories as to why people say this? I, I have a few, but I'd like to hear yours first. Well, I, I have some, some cynical ones. but <laughs> Yeah, I have a few of those too. But, <laughs> but like, wh why do you think? I have no doubt Tony Parsons knows. I mean, he really sp speaks very clearly. He doesn't understand the space. He talks about it. They are, and Punjaji also speaks of the same thing. There's nothing you have to do to, to, to practice. And he did but, tons of practice. But he did tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of practice. And then he was the one saying, call off the search. Well, right. from his viewpoint, that's true. And, and perhaps, and this happens, your memory of those old things fade. They fade normally for people, but, but in fact, it seems to be with this, this kind of situation of losing this eye, much of the eye, that you lose a lot of episodic uh, autobiographical memories. And so they probably can't even remember what it was like. Or it might be, yeah, I think that's probably true. And it, it may also be that you're just, uh, you know, living in that state. You can see that it's uncaused and uncon un unconditioned and independent of anything anyone could do. Kind of like the sun. I mean, the sun is always shining, and it really doesn't matter to the sun that there's clouds down there or not. But from some on the other side of the clouds, it matters a whole lot because, you know, you're not seeing the sun. And so wind is important, maybe, to blow away the clouds. That, exactly. That's, that's, exactly. that's the practice there. But, and then once the sun realizes, oh, this is, I've always been shining, and it's like the whole issue of wind and clouds and all that must seem very distant and irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. 
But and it is. I mean, from from this from the vantage point, of, of, you know, further on out, you look back and say, well, why doesn't anybody see this thing? It's Ilvan. It's so close. It's so obvious. It's so. I mean, it's right here. Who can? How can you possibly miss this? Mm. It was there all along. But it's different when you can't see it. When there's yeah. a bunch of clouds in the way, you can't see that. But it is so astonishingly self-evident. But not if you can't see it. A couple other ideas of why people might dismiss the relevance of practice, and these are the, along the more cynical varieties. Are, you know, one is they're just conceptualizing this thing. And if you if if you conceptualize non-duality, if that's your appreciation of non-duality is is as a concept, then practice seems absurd. You know, why should you be sitting on your butt thinking a mantra or you know doing whatever you do when it's all just one? You know, and and it's already that. It's always been that. But they're not necessarily. Uh, enjoying the living experience of it you know it's just no, and, and there's so much there's a lot of i had this great experience i heard one guy i had this experience 25 years ago and i read about non-duality for 25 years and i'm not convinced i'm awake it isn't like that it isn't one experience that you he, he is not convinced or is now convinced he is he, now convinced he's oh awake. now so convinced he had that experience 25 years ago and he's read about non-duality so he must be non-dual uh, but he, but he has no ongoing experience. He just has this memory of something from 45 years ago. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people who've had. I mean, many, many, many people have had non-dual experiences. But the, but the question is, do they understand them, and can they make that a reality? I mean, yeah, it, is it sustained regardless of exactly. whether whether you're awake, asleep, watching a movie, falling off a bicycle? You know, is it sustained under all circumstances? Exactly, because if it, if it isn't. There's a lot of fuss in some quarters being like, you must have this experience, then this experience, then this experience, and this experience. I think that is really non-useful. I think that doesn't help people at all because there's a lot of, we've talked about scripting a lot in this thing. If you tell somebody at the university, for example, that the answer on the test is 14, and they come back and you give them the test, they support it on 14. We know how to do that. And you be very careful working with people to not... Uh, give them the answer in a way that they can give it to you without understanding it. Mm-hmm. That's very important. Yeah. There's another reason I think that sometimes practice is poo-pooed, and that is that a person actually has never experienced an effective practice. You know, and maybe they've tried something and it wasn't very gratifying, so they say, "Think to hell with that." You know, I, I'm not. <laughs> practice is a waste of time. Uh, but if you really experience an effective and, and uh, gratifying sort of, of practice, you realize, oh, there, there's really something to this. When I say, well, how could you possibly, you know, practice as much as you do? I said, I love it. It's yeah. A, it's the sweetest thing I can imagine. I mean, it's just such a sweet place to be, even when I, before now. It was a great part of my day. It was still quiet. You know, I love doing the yoga. I love doing the meditation. It just was a sweet place. So you get the to Mahabharata Mahashogi's quote. You do get sweetness along the way, mm-hmm. and it pulls you into the practice. If you're really doing a good practice, it will get sweet with time. It will get better and better, and you will get pulled into this. That's why people say, "Oh, I can't even do practice." You just haven't <laughs> done a practice to begin a good practice. To begin yeah, that really works for you. It really works for you. Yeah, yeah. He used to say, "The goal is all along the path." And yeah. he, used to, he used to use these phrases, he, he, like the pathless path. I mean, he didn't originate yeah. them, but he, he really liked those kinds of phrases. And, and because there's gratification, there's reinforcement, so to speak, at every stage of the game if, if you're actually proceeding effectively. And I really push. I'm very uh, open about peak practices. You've read mm-hmm. my book, and so I have many, many practices. And when I start working with people, I say, well, what do you want to do? So, well, what works for you? What do you like to do? 
Yeah. Find something you love to do and will do it. If it's chanting, if it's asanas, if it's breath work, if it's self-inquiry, we'll do that. And, and they can find something they like to do and it starts to be a sweet practice for them. Then they begin to pick it up and find something in this that really nourishes them. In your book, when you were talking about Malcolm Gladwell and the 10,000 hours and all that, I actually got out the calculator and I thought, all right, how many, I've been meditating like maybe on average of three hours a day for 45 years. So what does oh, that, what does that boil down to? And I thought, this is about 50,000 hours maybe, yeah. which is six or seven years sitting on my butt with my eyes closed. <laughs> but it's, you know very well. I mean, it, it's not like you're sticking pins in your eyes. No, no, it's like, been, you know, I, I would never have traded it for anything. It's no. six or seven very delightful years, which, you know, or, you know, time well spent. Yeah. I mean, what else am I going to do? I, you know, could have been watching movies or eating food or, you know, right. doing something. But all, it's just a component of life. It becomes a component of life, which yeah. is just as meaningful and, and as productive as anything you might be doing externally. That's right. Much richer, much more fulfilling. Yeah. So you are getting feedback all along the line, even if it isn't. Now, some argue that, okay, yeah, fine, but at a certain point, you need, you should drop practice. A friend of mine uh, went to see Pamela Wilson, and she said, uh, and she somewhat proudly said, hey, I've been meditating for 20 years now, and Pamela said, oh, you poor soul, let me help you. I kind of understand where Pamela's coming from and, and where my friend is coming from, because at a certain point, one can become so well established that practice becomes irrelevant. But there was something in your book on page 72, which I thought was kind of nice, um, that pertains to this. You said, uh, famous dialogue between a 20th century Zen master and his student addresses this issue. The student wrote, truly I see that there are degrees of depths in enlightenment. The master replied, yes, but few know this significant fact. Their discussion goes on to describe in classical Zen fashion and metaphors what those stages are. The Zen master states that, what these people, contemporary Zen teachers, fail to realize is that their enlightenment is capable of endless enlargement. Um, and then you say these are virtually the exact words of, used by Adyashanti. And you go on to talk about it a bit more. But um, endless enlargement. Let's talk about that a little bit. I was fortunate. My first <coughs> yoga teacher's training class, of course, was with Amit Desai. If you're Paul, mm -hmm. who's just getting started. Yeah, I've interviewed him. Yeah. yeah, it was a very different practice back then. It was a different mm -hmm. person back then and whatever. To me, that was really surrender. The idea is to get energy into your body and then let your body do what it needs to do. The body has great wisdom. And so it was a good practice to learn how to surrender sensation by sensation. That's been something that, that's you know been really important. And now when I do my, my quote, practice, I just come down in the mornings, my usual times, more or less, and just I'm there, sitting mm -hmm. quiet. And then something manifests. It can be sitting meditation, it can be chanting, it can be chanting and sitting, it can be pranayama, and then an asana practice will happen. And the asana practice will be whatever the body finds itself moved to do at that particular time. So there is a holistic, natural unfolding out of emptiness of what the body is going to do to do work on this now. And it does really feel as if this process, which you believe couldn't get any deeper, it does get more and more still, deeper and quieter and more sweet. It does get deeper and deeper and deeper. To Harada Roshi's quote, it does enlarge and enlarge and enlarge. And not without a doer, I mean, not without, if you bring a doer in, you're going back in their direction. You start giving out rewards for having achieved levels, you're going in the other direction. But without a doer, 
this thing spontaneously, naturally unfolds, and it's just she's just dancing the body through whatever she wants to do that day to do the next step of the awakening process. Yeah, and so that answers the question that people might be asking at this point. Well, if, if this guy is realized, why does he sit down and do a practice? Why does he chant? Why does he do asanas? Why does he meditate or, or whatever? And you just answered it because it seems to be able to enlarge all the more. And, and I was anti-Sanskrit. Uh, I mean, Gary Kraftsau, an old buddy of mine, one of the big yoga teachers, uh, tried to get me to learn Sanskrit for a long time. And I went, oh, oh, no, no, I don't need that. Not an easy language to learn. Not as, oh, no, get away, oh, hide yeah. away. And then, then after the page turned, I found myself, people said, well, is there anybody else that's ever done this? You know, is there any text talks about this, any ancient text? I said, I don't, I don't know. I'll go look. And the only thing I could find that really spoke to it was Maharshi's teachings and the Gita. Mm -hmm. And the Gita to me was so beautiful that I just found myself being drawn into learning Sanskrit. I took a bunch of Sanskrit courses, nice. and I've got a book coming out. I'm listening to this in the book pitch, but a book coming out now with six, 60 selected verses that are in Devanagari and transliterated, translated in commentary on the Gita, because uh -huh. the Gita is such a powerful, beautiful thing to chant. And the more you learn the Sanskrit, the more you get to really, like with good poetry, you get to feel what's underneath and within the words more than just the translation of them. Mm. So to me, I love Sanskrit. We, I do a lot of chanting with the people I work with. They love to do it. It's, it's sweet. Yeah. You probably know this, but for the sake of the listeners, it's, it's said that in Sanskrit, there's a one-to-one -one correlation between the sound quality of the words and the forms to which they correspond. Uh, whereas in English, let's say the word apple, you know, the, the, the actual vibratory quality of the sound apple may not correspond to the vibratory quality of an apple itself, but in Sanskrit there's supposed to be that correlation. And so by chanting Sanskrit shlokas, you're actually kind of evoking an influence or creating an influence by virtue of the sound quality of those words. Yeah, and if, even if, if without a little bit of imagination, you can look at Sanskrit, the Devanagari characters. Mm -hmm. The characters actually look like how you make those sounds. Mm. If you look very carefully and look how you make those sounds, and Sanskrit is the most, if a scientist for designing a language, it would be Sanskrit, is exactly, precisely, intelligently constructed around five different places you can make sounds, six or eight different ways you can make a sound. I mean, everything flows just scientifically and logically to what they came up with. It's a, it's a beautifully tight language. Yeah. Yeah. So just to just to wrap up a point we were just discussing a minute ago. So, in your own experience, you feel that there's a, an ongoing, what was the word we used, enlargement or deepening yeah. or, or yeah. Ref, refinement yeah. or something or other. There's there's some kind of growth taking place, despite the fact that there was this threshold you crossed, um, and and uh, once having crossed, there was some kind of sameness to the fundamental nature of your experience. I'm putting your words in your mouth, okay. but you, you can elaborate. So, in other words, that which you essentially know yourself to be can't be enhanced any, or, or you know, made more shiny or something. But, but somehow the embodiment of it, the fullness with which it is being appreciated or expressed, knows no end to to development. Is, is that true to say? That's correct. But even, even materialistically, I mean, we have 50 trillion synaptic interconnections. 50 mm -hmm. trillion. Right. And those can all be nodes for passing information or storing memories. If only 10% of those have to do with this I mean, this I mean, my thing, you've still got five trillion of these things to unwind. It's a good thing they don't unwrap all at once. Mm. 
So, I mean, I think that's what's happening. I mean, the brain, getting materialistic again, the brain is cleaning out, getting this like riding a bicycle. The more times you ride the bicycle, the tighter that network gets to be, the more, uh, the less energy it consumes. I think the brain goes around, and you'll be sitting for a long time, and there'll be some little memory will pop up from long, long, long ago. Mm-hmm. You say, what is that? Oh, it pops up. You didn't have, there's nothing to trigger, it just pops up. And so you just don't pick, take a deliver in the package and the thing goes away. And it won't come back again usually. And you say, well, how did that possibly happen? That's been so long ago. Then it didn't even matter, even then. But I think the brain goes around, this is more pleasant again, hunting for places that are not being used. And the brain is very parsimonious, so it goes around and finds this. Here's an old thing over here that you're not using anymore. Do you care about this? And nobody takes delivery in the package. There's nobody to care about the package anymore, so it opens up. It's vacated. Nobody wants it, and so it just goes away. But it, it, it's, I'm just guessing now how this increased deepening goes, but it does get deeper and deeper and richer. I mean, it just, it's, just, it's just, you think, it can't go any deeper, and it gets more and more still. Yeah, that's one thing I would conclude from having interviewed 180 people. I don't think I've talked to anybody yet who is not still getting deeper or kind of developing in some way, even though a few of them denied it when I asked them that question. Uh, You know, I I suspect that if I talk to them 10 years from now and ask them the question again, they'll say, well, sure enough, you know, (laughs) there's actually been some development. Absolutely. There's an awful lot of brain circuitry that gets rewrapped and repurposed. Yeah, which to me is not at all a, a discouraging notion. It's it's exciting. It's it's oh, uh, absolutely. It's like cool. Let's let's keep exploring. You absolutely. Know? Yeah, and and she keeps learning about herself mm-hmm. in that direction. But you do keep it. It keeps it vibrant. I mean, it's like uh, almost every day something will feel like it's something shifts just a little bit. You know, like yeah. another key in the lock just turns a little bit. Some other door you didn't know was the door. Opens. You don't know why it opens. It's something. Something just goes click. Yeah. And you just don't know what it is or why it is or how it is, but something changed. A lot of explorers like Lewis and Clark and all, when they finished their big exploration, their lives really went to crap. Because oh yeah. Oh. They didn't have that sort of adventure anymore. Of. <laughs> That's the great thing about the way this thing comes out. Yeah. It, it stays such a, a beautiful exploration. I mean, you just keep. Every every day is a, is a, a delight. Every day is just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And it gets sweeter and sweeter. It's just such a beautiful thing to do. Was it you that quoted Pablo Casals in your book about he was in his 90s and he was still practicing and, and someone asked him, well, you're in your 90s, why are you still practicing? And he, and he said, well, there's, there's room for me to improve, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you say, there's, there's nothing you have to do. Look at the great artists. I mean, look at the, the really magnificent artists, and Cezanne's and Picasso's and Casals and those people. <clears throat> They keep going. They just do, don't step back and say, well, yeah, I paid four or five good pictures. I'm done now. Mm. Uh, it's not like that. The really great ones keep on going because it's such a delight for them. Yeah. It's an exploration. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of presuming here, but I, th- I think if you had a conversation with uh, Papaji or Ramana Maharshi or Nisargadatta or somebody, uh, some of these guys on this point and really got into it, they would concur with what we're saying. I, I just oh, oh, absolutely. Ramana said... You know, for all of his uh, way, where his path went, he said, perseverance. It's all about perseverance. The successful few owe their success to their perseverance. Hmm. And it is just you keep on 
because the practice is not complicated, it's not hard, but it requires perseverance. You just have to keep going back and going back and going back. Hmm. And are you aware of anything Ramana might have said about his own experience in terms of its ongoing uh, deepening or enlargement? I don't recall anything. I, I read a ton, about, ton of his stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, as the story goes, and he was 16, he, he, one of his relatives died, and he laid down in his, his uncle's place where he was staying and visualized himself dying. Right. And out of that came this great awakening. That was a trigger for him. Trigger for him. As well, that CZ there is an example. He had no, no uh, teacher. Well, interestingly, Ramana Maharshi, the only spiritual teaching he had was the Psalms and Gospels, the Christian Psalms and Gospels. And he had read the lives of some Shaivites and some Shiva uh, saints. That was all he had when he woke mm -hmm. up. He'd been sent off, his mom sent him off to uh, Scott's Middle School, and they taught English. He would first learn English, learn English through the Bible. So that's all he knew was Psalms and Gospels when he woke up. Mm -hmm. And he, he maintained later, he said, he, I never learned anything out of the tech. People come and ask me questions subsequently over the intervening 35, 40 years. But I learned my all my stuff from people asking me questions about it. Hmm. So, so because it, when the questions were like little, um, yeah, they, they evoked some knowledge yeah. to come forth from him. Well, and it, but here's, what, what, so here's a Gita verse. They tell me a Gita verse. He said, "What does Gita, Gita verse mean?" He said, "Well, it means this." He said, "Well, that's great. It, that's what it means. That's even better than what, the, what I read it was meant." Mm. And so, a lot of this stuff just just was evident to him as an answer. But you know, as far as no practice, he was in Virupaksha Cave. For 17 years. Yeah, there's practice for you. First 10 years of it, he was in complete silence. Not because he was, you know, mauna, which is a forced by silence, but he was just in there, just absorbed in this thing, and try, I'm, I'm guessing trying to work it out. He did, he did not talk about the details of what he did, but he talked about he was a deep absorption and he was trying to work and work this thing through. Mm. So, you know, there was 10 very intense years, and then seven more years in Virupaksha K, according to Up the Hill. Uh, that he was doing an incredibly intense practice. Mm. I wonder if even as an old man he would, uh, if he ever spoke about or would have spoken about ongoing enrichment of, of his experience, or, it, or if there's a point at which in someone like him it really does come to a, a terminus. I don't know. I don't know. It's curious. I'm curious to know. I suspect not, but uh, I was just curious if you knew any quotes about it. I, I, I don't recall any. Yeah. There's another thing in your book, it's a little bit out, out of context about what, what we've been talking about here, but um, I think it was in the latter part where you quote, you, were, you had some Sanskrit verses and commentaries and translations on them, but you spoke about not undertaking an action with a goal, and, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I kind of took exception to that, because there's that verse in the Gita which says, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits. And I thought of an example, like let's say I want to go on a trip, and so that's my goal, and I, I sit down and I research plane tickets, and I, you know, I book a flight, and so on. So those are all actions with a goal. And the, but then let's say the day of the trip I come down with a really bad flu and I can't go. Uh, so I lose the money because it's a non-refundable ticket, and, and so on and so forth. So I, I had no control over the fruits of the action or the uh, consequences which resulted in my cancellation. But I definitely, you know was motivated by a goal in, in, in setting up the flight in the first place. So it seems like we do have goals and, and we don't just do things sort of without any reason whatsoever, but it's the fruits we have no control over. Well, that's karma yoga. I and mean, that's the whole yeah. chunk of the Gita on karma yoga is exactly that. I mean, mm -hmm. you, 
you show up, you chop wood, you carry water, but you don't get, you're not attached to the fact that you are doing the chopping or you are carrying the water, nor do you, you know, get upset because the pile is only this big or not that big. You just keep chopping wood and carrying water. Yeah, nor do you know how things are going to turn out. I mean, Absolutely. It, all the it, things it, we do, you know, we, we, we yeah. do them for a purpose. It's not like there's no purpose in what we attempt to do, but we really have no control over the outcome. People ask me, should you, should you make lists? I say, sure, if you want to make lists, make lists. <clears throat> Just recognize that, you know, because what it will do is it will take that out of the brain's concern. I mean, the brain gets so excited about, oh, we have these six things to do, we have to go to, to Denver or something. And so you make the plans to go to Denver, like as you say. You make the plans to go to Denver, but they may not work out. And you, you go down this path to go to Denver, but you may find out that, in fact, you know, it's not going to work out. Mm. Okay. And you just let go then. You just let go. So, so you know, that was more the karma yoga part of it. I mean, there's some great Gita verses towards the end, 1858, 59, 66, 162, where it's, you're not in control. You're right. totally not in control. They're beautiful verses, and I've got a video of them on YouTube. But it's really taught in Yada, Hankara, Mashrachana, Yodsha, Iti, Manyase, Mitya, Isha, Vyabhasya, Te, Prakritish, Tvamni, Yokshati, which says, even though you resolve, I will not fight. Mm -hmm. Your resolution is in vain. Because you will find you will do exactly as you're supposed to do. Yeah. And there's the next three or four verses of this, so the same tenor, that's really that you may believe you've made a plan to do this, and you absolutely will not do anything except this, but you'll find yourself doing something else. Yeah. <laughs> and Krishna says, I've already killed all these people, you know. Exactly, they're already dead, don't worry about it. It's already, it's already in the bag. <laughs> You've made references a bit to neurophysiological ref uh, research and so on and so forth. And is that like a focus of yours? I, I somehow am aware, but only vaguely, that you've really made a study of this and, and uh, a lot more than we've actually discussed in this interview. I got put into a bunch of studies. Just as a subject? As a subject. I see. And I ended up being a collaborator as well. Uh -huh. the, 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 one, the one that's ongoing is the one at Yale, which was looking at long-term meditators. Uh, the study that was published was 10,000-hour Theravadans, Judd Brewer's paper. And it was very useful in the show what centers get deactivated with long-term meditation, what centers get up-activated, uh, that there was perhaps a controlling, a, a watching and control network activated to be able to watch over this shutdown default mode network that supported this ongoing state. So I was in that study and, and keep collaborating with those guys. I'll be in, I'll see you, see Judd this Thursday. To me, there's great value in that because, well, you're just a reductionist materialist. You're just trying to make this thing all into cognitive neuroscience. I say, no, but, but the more we can understand about what we can understand, the more you're, you, you make that easier. I mean, if the brain is just a transceiver <clears throat> and we understand how it operates, we can make practices that more easily get into other modes. We can understand what are useful practices, not useful practices, what might work, what might not work. And many people now insist on knowing that there's some scientific basis behind things. I mean, it can't just be, you know, me reciting the Gita to them, you know. Some like that, other ones say, I want to know, give me some reference papers, peer-reviewed papers, and that's what I did for a living. I did that for a living for, for decades, was generate research, get you know, intellectual property, write papers, that's what my people did. Mm -hmm. So I, I know that world, and so we're kind of trying to say, okay, how much can we learn from science to inform our practices and what's happening to us so we can steer better other people down this thing and save them a lot of time.
I have that orientation too, having had a TM background. Margie was really big on research, you know, and and here in Iowa, there's a whole group of people, Fred Travis, who's doing neurophysiology of of higher states and so on. So, I mean, you know, I'm not in the TM movement anymore, but I, I think that it's um, it's a valid issue because it can cut through a lot of crap. I think. I mean, you know, it can sort of if neurophysiological parameters of enlightenment could be established then you could separate fantasy from, you know, real attainment, um, and it could really lead to a, a much deeper appreciation or understanding of how we're wired and, you know, what the potential for human life is. Um, and, and they are beginning to see, and you probably know this from your circles of, of study, that the, the brain of a, a person who's been meditating for a long time or who's, uh, who's awakened in, you know, however we define it, functions radically differently than the ordinary <clears throat> brain. Yeah, and, and the one caveat or just something, a footnote, I've had a very difficult time getting the major traditions to come and talk and lay out, okay, let's talk about a secularized, scientifically based definition of awakening. How would we define that? <clears throat> We've done, I mean, I've done five, five studies now. I mean, we can write down a lot of the things that are necessary, but maybe not sufficient. We can at least start talking about what might be a neuroscientifically based understanding of awakening. Nobody wants to touch it. Why? You're a Rinpoche. Mm-hmm. And, and somebody said, we're crawling to that fMRI there, we're going to see if you're really awakened or not. Mm-hmm. Not going to happen. Because he's afraid that he might not be by that... By yeah, those, exa- by exactly, by that. And, and if you look at talks at the Tibetans about... The, I'm just picking on them, I just need numbers for the stuff. <clears throat> there are many things there that are scientifically not verifiable. I mean, in, in my humble opinion, they're religious. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm taking... That's what, that's what religions do. <clears throat> but if you want to try to say, what, can we make this clean, scientifically secular and admit that at least these things are common and maybe some other things are non-common. Can get no traction on that discussion. Interesting. I mean, sure, uh, let's say you look at a rose and it's a beautiful experience um, and then you're, you're hooked up to an EEG machine while you're looking at the rose. What The, the little squiggles on, on the EEG paper are pretty f- poor substitute for the actual experience of the rose. So, you know, the, the, <coughs> the scientific measurement is really comparatively crude compared to our, our the, the sophistication of our subjective experience, but nonetheless, I I, I think that you know it is a, it, it is the language of the age, so to speak, scientific, scientific measurement and so on. And um, I th- personally, I think these <laughs> whatever they can do whatever they want, but these guys should embrace with enthusiasm the, the opportunity to try to bridge the two worlds and to have. You know the the, the two worldviews understand each other. I don't know. I, I, I absolutely agree, but there's there's so much vested interest in things as they are, mm. and so much fear that things might not be as they are if we really get science into this thing. I mean, huh. it harkens back to the Catholic Church taking 350 years to recognize Galileo might have been right after all. Yeah. <laughs> I think they just they just apologized a few years ago. Yeah, exactly. Wasn't that longer than that? Well, yeah, yeah, we had it right. I mean, we've got to somehow, and I think people are going to demand there be some scientific basis for some of this stuff, or they aren't going to buy it. And what I think the brilliance that John Kabat-Zinn did with with mindfulness meditation was to make it secular. 
Mm. I mean, it made it so much more valuable, so much more accessible to different kind of people. But you've got to allow science in some place. Right? It's a great thing Maharishi Mahashogi did because you, he was after science that we have to understand this thing scientifically. Yeah, and uh, and they published. I mean, there's a certain amount of you know propaganda motivation mm -hmm. in in that research, but you know there's a lot of legitimate research by some pretty serious guys and uh, you know several hundred at least peer-reviewed um, studies that, that have been done. So I think that's. That's good. I, I think it, it, it not only sort of helps this, the understanding of the scientific world, but I think that the spiritual world has something to gain from it because there's, there's such, such a kind of a vague, um, under, maybe it's not vague, I mean, you just don't see a clear-cut understanding in any of the traditions, at least I, from my perspective, don't, of what the range of possibilities is and whether this tradition concurs with that tradition. And, and, and I mean, is it all different or are, are there really sort of, you know, milestones on the path to higher consciousness that uh, all traditions would agree on if they could speak the same language and if there could be some physiological corroboration of, of what was going on? not happening right now. Yeah, it's, it's not happening, and there's a lot of. I mean, I won't go through it. But it's a lot of resistance huh. from from the institutions, and and you just try to get somebody who's a way up the food chain in one of the big traditions to come and lie and up MRI. It's not going to happen. Ah, well, well, they'll die off. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Einstein said that too. The physics advances by funerals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, in, in light of this, that one other. Thought that fascinates me is is just the notion that um, this nervous system we have is actually the ultimate scientific tool. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's the ultimate telescope, microscope. You know, um, it, it's 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 far more sophisticated than any physical tool that man has been able to build, and you can actually use it. Uh, in accordance with the same scientific principles as you would use a microscope and a telescope and a, you know a particle accelerator and so on and, and apply the sort of criterion of the scientific method to spiritual exploration using this as the instrument absolutely and, and that's where we're, that's where the next journey is that's where the current journey is it's going to be for quite a while is doing exactly what you said I mean, using this all the tools that we have internally with this beautiful machine we have to explore this inner space yeah. And so this this has implications for the whole you know science versus religion, uh, you know, materialism, materialism versus spirituality debate. Um, this you know the the science the the materialist insistence upon scientific procedure can be satisfied, and uh, using this using the instrument of I mean you can take a, a hardcore atheist let's say and give him certain practices if he's willing to participate and have him practice them for X amount of time and let's see what he discovers you know let's see if his atheism changes by virtue of discovery of a spiritual dimension exactly I mean if you go on this you go on this path you see if you give him to do this for very long he would get to an OMG experience he would get to a what is this I yeah, mean, yeah I don't know what I don't know what this is this is not my normal experience and it becomes, it's this great vastness. He comes upon that, and it's like, I don't know what this is, but it's not what I thought I was. Yeah. And, and out of that comes a whole different, you know, from the roots, understanding of what spirituality is about. And of course, that's happened with psychedelics. I mean, there have been people who have been atheist materialist types that have dropped acid or something, and a whole new world has opened up for them. It might be a little bit harder to get them to sit down and do <laughs> a regular meditation practice, but the principle is the same nonetheless. Well, and Hopkins right now is doing uh, 
start, just starting a study on psilocybin, magic mushrooms, plus or minus meditation, beginning in advanced meditators. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of stuff that we'll begin to tease out. Okay, you know, just what, is there something useful here within psychedelics that can make this path easier and faster? And anecdotally, it appears as if, if people have done psychedelics, I'm a complete virgin again, uh, as if it does make the path easier. We don't know why that might be the case, and I know there's some people you know, strongly opposed to even talking about that, but it does appear to be that that may make the trip faster. And, and some people, as they say, who would never touch this stuff, have a psychedelic experience and recognize that their brain, that this reality, is not really real the way they thought it was. And it really is a brain-constructed system, and it's subject to modification and re-understanding. Oh, yeah. I mean... I dropped acid when I was 17, and that was that was the big wake up for me. It was like I was still a totally confused, messed up kid, but I it, I was just hit so clearly with the realization that it all depends on your perspective, and the world Absolutely. is the world is not everyone sees the same world, and and the whole game is to alter your ability to perceive the world, not to just rearrange external circumstances, but to change your consciousness, change your perspective, and I could never forget that. Yeah, absolutely. And so that, that's, that's the common report from, from people I run across who don't psychedelics. There's a lot of them. Yeah. Is exactly that. You know, I thought the world was real. But I yeah. see now it's just a perceptual illusion. It's just the way my brain arranged these things to represent them to me. But it's not real. It's not real in that sense. Yeah, and on the other hand, I would say that at least my, my opinion is that once you've gotten that message, it may be time to drop the psychedelics because they're not a long-term uh, solution to really altering your perspective. Yeah, and I, I, I can, I'm open to being contradicted, but I've not met anybody who's gone all the way on psychedelics. Right. And I've met many people, one fellow in particular, I won't mention his name, but I, I was with him down in Yucatan in 12, 12, 12, at a thing, and, and he's done literally thousands of acid trips, and yeah. he's done them with high levels, three, uh -huh. four hundred, I mean, big numbers of and He's still stuck. He's stuck. Yeah. After and how did he? How did he strike you as being a? And what kind of? Um, did he seem to have a few um, neurons fried there? Or? He's not so much fried. I mean, he's he's very lucid. He's kind of a rock star in the in the who can take the most psychedelics world. He's written a book. He's, he gets interviewed a lot. And and I said, look, you're caught in a loop here. You, you've developed this fantastically powerful ego who is identified now as being you know psychedelic king. And this this thing of you trying to die over and over again, you've died now thousands of times, but you're not dying at all. You just haven't let go of your egoic identity. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Until you let go of your egoic identity, you're going to keep doing loops for another thousand hits of acid. Mm. And he, he just is stuck there. It's too bad. Was, it, was he open to that message? Well, no. Yeah. Another thing I throw in here is that I have a young friend who grew up as a meditator basically since early childhood and you know then and was having marvelous experiences and then in her I guess early 20s uh, maybe late teens took ayahuasca and it really put her over the edge she's been in and out of mental hospitals ever since so I would be very very cautious and would advise caution to anyone considering experimenting with this stuff. Um, you know, the the brain is a very delicate instrument, and you just you, it's sort of a crapshoot. You know, taking this yeah, stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely, and ayahuasca is very much in in vogue right now. But as people all know, composition is a highly variable concentration. Are highly variable. Uh, a lot of additives in some of the some of the brews that are very dangerous. Yeah, uh, and and. and, and Cautionary tales. I mean, Hopkins is very, very careful 
in their psilocybin research. <clears throat> psilocybin is chemically pure. They know what they're doing. They have trained facilitators. They screen people ahead of time. They do follow-up. They have doctors standing by. Uh, even they be very careful. Yeah. One of Maharishi's teacher, uh, who's a great sort of a Shankaracharya of, of Jyotirmath in India, Gesundheit, um, his, his uh, kind of catchphrase was safety first. Oh, yeah. And Ramana was not, he did not endorse psychedelics. I mean, there was a lot of ganja around at the time, mm. just that, that part of India. And he said, yeah, you don't see anything. You're not going anyplace with this stuff. Yeah, it's not, not going to lead you to the end. So there was no, you know, psilocybin or anything, but they they had that around. Right. Yeah. So it's it's worth worth touching on that. Um, one for, one final point I have in my notes, and you mentioned cities in your book and how you spontaneously began to develop some cities at a certain point, and I believe you were you were mainly referring to just kind of a you know, sort of remarkable fulfillment of desires. You would have a desire for something, and it would fulfill. Is that is that the sort of thing you were talking about, or did, were you did you discover you had the strength of an elephant or something? <laughs> no, I didn't have elephant strength. But it, it, it was amazing how how you could get what you wanted. Yeah, you really could get anything you wanted. And and the uh, good news, bad news was that once you got anything you wanted, you found that it wasn't such a great a thing after all, and didn't want it anymore which was a real teaching in the end. And you also saw yourself getting, saw myself getting trapped into, ooh, I can do this. You know, it's very hard to have the cities exercise them and not get trapped into an egoic ownership of them. Was it happening spontaneously that you were getting what you wanted, or were you doing something to make it happen? I can do something to make it happen. Okay. Now, even now, do you find that you tend to get what you want? Um but, I, but there's no way to get anything. It's and spontaneous now, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've completely, I've let, let go of the whole city. I just let go of that. But it, it wasn't wasn't moving things forward. But but as far as get what I want, I mean, I don't want them. Yeah, but you, I mean, you still must have, you know, desires and intentions. You're interested in scientific research. You travel places. You want to meet people. You, you know, do you do, you know, you have a, a normal life on the surface anyway. And do you find that desires are fulfilled much more effortlessly than they might have been 20 years ago? I, I honestly don't have them. And I've been astonished what happens. I mean, mm -hmm. as far as for the research stuff and the people I've met, if I go back two years, I, I had no desires of any kind about any of this stuff and amazingly stuff has manifested astonishing stuff has manifested people I couldn't have imagined I would ever meet have just appeared and I get fantastic people come along and work with me I don't know where they are I don't know how they get here they just show up they come and stay go uh, it's just all it just comes in from who knows where um, but stuff way beyond anything I could have desired or even imagined that I could desire. It's just beyond my imagination. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, I don't know. Like last week, for instance, I, I mentioned this in an interview. I was at a AMA gathering in Chicago, mm -hmm. and, and there was a car parked next to mine that left its taillights on. Mm -hmm. I know. I told the story last week. I just said that. And... Uh, and as I was walking back to the hall, I thought, I just had this desire. I want to meet the person who owns that car so I can tell him he has his taillights on. And then I dropped the desire. And then I went into the men's room, and the guy standing next to me there, I asked him if he knew who might own such and such a car. He said, it's mine. 
And so, yeah, I would consider that a fulfillment of desire. I actually had the desire to meet the guy, and it happened spontaneously. It didn't go to my head or anything. I don't think I'm a really special person because that happened. But it, it's just as sort of an example of what I would call sort of supportive nature or innocent kind of fulfillment of of desire. But that's not the way you you're wired. Well, I I, I, that, I see those all the time. I mean, yeah, my my life is is nothing but serendipity. Serendipity, it happens, but I don't I don't have a desire about any part of it. I mean, I I might have seen the, the I'm taking the situation, seen the lights on the car, walked into the into the place, and and I found myself asking, who in here might have their lights on? Mm-hmm. And the guy says, I'm the head of lights on. Those happen so often to me. That's just how my life goes. It's it's just a, a whole bunch of those things strung together, serendipities. But they just happen. I mean, she's just dancing those into being. It's just I mean, to me, they're a great confirmation of the validity of the path that there's something here because you see these incredibly improbable events occurring, and they happen with such regularity that you say, "My gosh, this is who can believe this is accidental?" Mm-hmm. Or it's just a random bunch of events like that situation. You just imagine how much work has to go in to get everything lined up to have all that guy in the bathroom at the right time you walked in there, have you see it and walk in. I mean, it's just, it's just so unlikely, it's impossible to even conceive it, but yet those happen all the time. Yeah, so that's kind of the nature of your life these days. That's, that's what my life is, and like these people I meet, I won't bore you with all the things that happened in the last two years, but <laughs> beyond my imagination, I'm just a kid from the soft coal country of western Pennsylvania. And I'm meeting people I just can't even know they existed. Kind of people. So, yeah. I mean, it's, you just surrender, let go, and uh, it happens. Yeah. There's a saying in the in the Vedas someplace, Brahman is the charioteer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like that larger intelligence, which is governing the universe, uh, is governing you know your life, insofar as it's yours, uh, because you have gotten out of the way. Just get out of the way, and, and it's all you have to do. People are so afraid of, oh, what if I'm not here? Get out of the way, really. It is so much easier. She's so much better at doing this than I was, uh, and so I have no problem letting her do it. I mean, she just is astonishing. Day by day, week by week, the stuff that comes up that's mm. just beyond imagination, and it's all her doing, not me. Yeah, and perhaps we can conclude by just dwelling on the point that you know, just the desire to surrender and let her take over it doesn't just mean it's going to happen just like that there that surrender may have to happen by degrees in stages through a you know methodical process god helps those who help themselves but but there is the also that this is ramana now asking about desire you know your desire for awakening for understanding yes <clears throat> he said you must be like a man being held underwater with, with your head held down right. and your desire to get up uh, the Zen Center I was co-leader on for a while, a regional Zen Center. We had a painting. had this fellow standing there with his hair on fire, mm-hmm. painted. And it's that sense of, yes, absolutely, and it's all grace happening to you. But uh, if you come with the desire, if you come to the thing with great desire, then you will be successful. It may take a while, not by the path you want or as fast as you want, but if you really, really want it, it will happen. Yeah. And that to which you give your attention grows stronger in your life. Yep, so exactly. we we can actually, I mean, a person might say, oh, that sounds great, but my desire seems pretty lukewarm. But, you know, if you kind of keep uh, that as a priority, it, it intensifies. That's right, exactly. Yeah. 
which again is sort of contra contradicts the notion of just give up the search, which implies a kind of a jellyfish like, all right, whatever, you know, because uh, like know, that. yeah, not like that, not like that at all. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Uh, this has been really fun, as I knew it would be. <laughs> you know, any any final remarks you want to make, or have we pretty well covered it? We've covered it well. Maybe you've done good good research. That's your reputation. <laughs> good background. That's good yeah. Question. Thanks. Alrighty, so let me just make a few wrap-up points uh, for, in general. Um, this has been one in an ongoing series of interviews. I've been speaking with Gary Weber, and I'll, as usual, be linking to his website and whatever his books, whatever else he wants me to link to, from his page on batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, which is an acronym for Buddha at the Gas Pump. And if you go there, in addition to Gary's page, you'll find... 180 other interviews at this point and more as time goes on. And there are two ways of checking them out. There's an alphabetical index in the right-hand column, and then there's a menu item called Other Stuff, and if you look under there, there's a chronological index of all the interviews. Um, each interview has its own discussion area, which is in a forum that we created recently, so there will be a link to Gary's page in the forum from his, his main page. Uh, there are is also an audio podcast of this, and oh, probably even more people listen to the audio than watch the video. A lot of people listen while they commute and stuff. So there'll be a link on Gary's page and on every page to the uh, iTunes podcast. Um, there is a donate button, which I really appreciate people clicking. It keeps things rolling with, with this whole thing. And there's also a... Uh, an email sign-up thing. So if you'd like to be notified each time a new interview is posted, you'll see a tab there which you know you can do that through. So that's about it. So thanks for listening or watching. Thanks again, Gary. Okay. There's uh, been a, some funny video artifacts during this interview where you, you look perfectly normal and then it looks like your hair is on fire. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, <laughs> very appropriate. And, and also, I have this weird eye thing going on. I don't know what it is. So nothing, no cause for concern. It's just some sort of allergy or something that I'm suffering from just today. So don't worry about that. It'll be gone next week. <laughs> so thanks for listening and watching, everybody, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.